back there. Good morning, good morning, good morning. We are happy to be here. Okay, we are on Lesson 7, Revelation Part 1, The Letters to the Seven Churches. And uh, this week was, I think, just really fun. Um, we have tried a, a variety of approaches through the, the first uh, six weeks that I've been teaching this. And each week I try to give a little bit more uh, inductive Bible study skilling, right? Trying to teach you those 101 uh, points of what to do and how to handle it and kind of what the steps are that you're supposed to be doing. Today, I'm going to take a step back and go back to some of the fundamentals of what I like to do when I'm doing a, um, a visual for my students. Um, we are going to just take it real simple. I'm going to try to take it one day by one day, which is something that some of you will be going, yay, I can finally follow her. <laughs> okay, so, but to open, what I want to do is just do, again, a little bit of a synopsis on what it is that we just did this week. So to kind of get your mind wrapped back around uh, wh uh, what you have actually done. On day one this past week, you should have done your observations in chapter three, verses one through six, which is the letter to Sardis. Um, in your observations, as you noted from what I did with you last week, two important things have to be handled in your mind to set your context, right? One is you have to understand your historical setting. So even though she didn't tell you go do historical setting research, what should you have done? historical setting research to a degree. Now, what she tells you to do on day five at the end is now you can go and read, right? So eventually you will get there if you fail to do it up front. But I'm just telling you so that you understand the process. The real process should be that right away when you're doing your observations on each of these churches, in order to prepare yourself to address the church, you need to look at the historical background. Um, last week, that was super essential. Uh, this week, it wasn't necessarily as um, uh, instructive to us, but still, you never know. So that's the point. You need to do it, okay? So that that's in your observation letter. Should have marked all those keywords. So what we're going to do right off the bat is go back and look at what are your keywords and what were your contrasts and comparisons and that kind of thing so that we just lay out the fundamentals of what you did on day one. Day two was your chart on Jesus's messages to the churches. So again, you have this lovely little chart and on each side, there, whoops, I got, I missed my part two of it. It's here. Um, you needed to have each of those uh, questions answered about the warnings, the instructions, the promises, how Jesus was described, so forth, right? That was on your day two homework. Okay, and then um, in that day two homework, the next part, after you filled that chart in, she had you go in and look at the symbolisms of Jesus, which I loved. I thought that was really um, instructive. And also, I think for those of you who are really baffled maybe by what is that seven spirits of God thing all about, right? That was really, did you guys find that part kind of fun and interesting as you researched and were you kind of excited about getting to the next verse to say, okay, I still want a little bit more, but, and eventually you're going, oh, is that all? Is that it? Oh, I get it, right? So, but we'll talk about all those symbolic pictures in that. Um, 
And I don't know if you noticed or not, at the end of that, once you concluded figuring out what that seven spirits of God was picturing for you, um, there were two things that we could have done which were not in your homework. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully remember, hopefully I'm going to make myself a note because I just realized I didn't write it on here and I want to make sure I bring it up. Uh, there were two things, that and that uh, scripture interprets scripture. Did I just tell you what it was? <laughs> there was a there was a verse previously given to us in this uh, study. Oops, where did my marker go? Do you see it? Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay, so that was day two about this, looking at the seven spirits, right? The, the seven spirits who are before the throne and filling in that chart. Day three, we looked at the subject matter that gets brought up by another keyword, which was you have a, um, uh, let's see, read it on here. Um, you have a name that you are alive, but you are what? dead. So we needed to investigate that subject of being dead and what that means a little bit more. So what she had us do was look at the source of life. What does it mean life? Since the message is to the churches, obviously this is a Christian message about salvation, right? And what Jesus is doing is warning that they, they, they have a, a name that they're alive, but they're actually dead. He's calling them out on it, and there's a warning in that. And then what she wanted us to do then was to look at the source of eternal life and what exactly what was being said to them. You're dead. I mean, this is quite... If, if you're on the receiving end of that message, John has written this letter to you at the church. That I yeah, Susan, that's exactly I would be going, yikes. I mean, okay, so what what needs to be done? Okay. And then in day four, we looked at what deeds have to do with salvation, because he goes on to say, I have found that your deeds are uh, I have not found that your deeds are completed in the sight of my God, right? So we're going to talk about those deeds. What are those deeds specifically? And what does the text actually tell us those deeds are concerning, right? And then day five, why those in Sardis are to wake up. So we looked at all kinds of cross-references then on day five concerning the waking up, what that means, what that would entail, what it would look like. Now, she covered it from, from really only one perspective and I, of course, you know me, overachiever, somebody said already this morning. I went to the next side of it, which was, um, the, to me, the question at the end would be, um, I think, a little bit deeper. When you looked at why those artists are to wake up, we looked at the subject of staying awake, right? We looked at the virgin's uh, parable. We looked at the bride parable of being prepared and ready, correct? Were, were there any other questions that popped up for any of you concerning what you might have been asking yourself? It, it, you know, wake up. What is that? What is? What do I need to do to wake up? Any question? Any thoughts on that? Besides what we looked at. Right. Okay. How do you strengthen something if you don't know what that something is? So what do you think might be necessary for a person who has been attending church 
Because that's, in fact, what we're kind of talking about, right? Yes, Kathy. So you, you need to go back to the Word of God. And, and concerning the Word of God, I remember there was a youth group that what, they were going to be going on a, a missions trip, supposedly, right? It's, it's the bus trip where all the kids have a lot of fun. <laughs> but they go to the beach, and they're supposed to find people on the beach a witness to them. That's part of the work of that ministry for kids. And so before they were going to go, I said to them, well, how are you going to minister to people witnessing to them? How are you going to evaluate whether they're saved or they're not saved? What if they don't know? What if they stand there and they say, well, I know about God and I go to church. What are your next questions going to be, right? And that's kind of what we're looking at here in this church. It's you're approaching a group of people who are saying, uh, well, we, we attend this church. You have a name that you're alive. You're there. But I'm calling you out on this. I'm telling you you're dead. So what should a believer, supposed believer, do at that point? No guesses on that? There you go. Perfect. They need to examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. Now, how do you go about examining yourself? You and I both know we don't see the Holy Spirit. I, I am going to have a conversation with someone when I get to heaven. Probably not God because I wouldn't dare. But um, why didn't we get a nice shiny golden cross that glowed you know how the left behind series you could see a cross on people's foreheads if they that's what I want I want the ones who are actually saved my daughter did a beautiful piece of art one one time where it was a, a city street scene kind of looked like you know downtown Turkey is actually what it kind of looks like or New York City buildings concrete whatever but in the scene were all these people doing a variety of things you know the firemen coming the woman walking the baby and people peering out their window and that kind of stuff and what she did was uh, her her assignment was to use yellow in a in a distinctive way so what she did is she used yellow as the glowing effect on those in that scene that were Christian and then the rest were dark. They were there. They were details. You could see them, but they were dark. And I thought, what an amazing, because you know what? If we had that, we'd know who is and who isn't. And John would not have had to writ written this letter, right? Am I, am I right? I hope you all are, under, are following me on this. Okay, so what God has done, though, for us instead is he says, look, I, I'm going to give you a litmus test within the word of God concerning who is and who isn't. And what you need to do is learn to be, number first and foremost, examiners of your own life. And then secondarily, look to see what the fruit is on the tree of those around you. Are they bearing fruit or not? So what I would will take you to at the end of this, if we have time, and I, we may not, but just in case I miss it, first John, these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. The entire book of 1 John is it. And when those young kids were about to go off on that missions trip, I took them through 1 John. And I said, this is the things that you can know. So as you're having conversations with people, you can weed it out through conversation in kind of a stealth way, right? To say, well, do you attend a church? Are you in a Bible study? What kind of 
things are you involved with? I mean, there are things that you can look at, you know, what about people? What are your relationships like? So do you love people? Right. And, and what is your confession? So those were the things that for me, I felt like we're kind of missing here and that, that kind of tied this whole thing up. So hopefully I can get there. If I don't, it'll be on the, the synopsis that I'll send out with my homework. And I'm sending these out for probably the rest of, if I remember to, for the rest of uh, this part one. And then after that, I won't be doing it anymore. But I'm doing this to help those of you who want to take that next step a little bit to help yourself kind of um, uh, gel in your mind. What is each week, each day's homework about and why am I doing it? By doing this synopsis, you will, you will see where, where you're headed each day. And I think it will help you focus a lot better on doing that homework, okay? All right, so that is your 101 for today. Now what I want to do is just start going right through this homework. We had some really good stuff in the homework this week. It was fun stuff. Okay, let's start then by looking at our keywords. And yeah, you can see that there, it's good. So let's make a list on keywords. What did you find were the keywords this week in your uh, looking at the letter to Sardis? The first one is deeds. All right. Don't everybody shout at once. These are simple. Wake up. Wake up. Okay. Alive. Dead. Garments. Why? Yeah, white garments. That was a fun subject. I was saying again. Soil. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's do this. Contrast. We've already brought up two. The first one had to do with alive, right? And it was contrasted with dead. And then you had white garments. And soiled garments. Let me get the verses for you on those. Um, this is verse one, and this was verse five. Um, what else? Any other keywords? Yeah, overcomers we know is in there, so we can list it, sure. I do too, but does it pertain to the primary subject, the major subject in this letter, the book of life? Absolutely, because the outcome of whether you're alive or dead makes a difference concerning that book of life, right? All right. What was the command given to them? And repent. So again, that word repent, and it keeps coming up over and over and over in these letters, doesn't it? Um, the only thing that we missed was probably the major character in chapter, in, in this letter to Sardis. And who is he? Who? Yeah, the spirit. So the seven spirits, 
of God. And the, and so, and the description therefore it also is of who? Jesus, right? We pull that out. Just like we have done in every letter, what we have seen is that um, the description given to us back in one kind of laid down the foundation of all. The, I love the way that they did that because how clever was it for God? It's always so clever. <laughs> how, how clever of it was it of God that he, in chapter one, gives a lengthy list for us describing Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. And he does it in a way that you know that's who he is speaking about, right? So all those descriptive words you can lay back on Jesus or at the, in the very opening, the seven spirits are laid back on um, grace and peace to you from who? God, the Father, God, the Spirit, and God, Jesus. And then it goes on and primarily focuses on Jesus, who the vision is of, right? So isn't it clever then that every letter pulls out something from that chapter one's description so that when you see this seven spirits of God and of Jesus, who do you automatically know that it has to be of considering that title, that picture was given to you back in chapter one. Did you notice that it was back in chapter one? Let's go back to chapter one and look at that. Okay, let's look at starting in verse four. I'll just read it out loud to you. Um, I think I'll actually read all the way through eight. Okay, John to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus. Now, those three ands link together the one who is and who was, who is to come and from the seven spirits and from Jesus. And since there are three and it's grace and peace are coming from them, just the quality of grace and peace tells you what? And he who is and who was, who, who is this? It's God. It's the triune God. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, all, it's the three-in-one God. And in, this, in the second part where, where, where he says, he who is and was and from what? The, well, the seven spirits. Where, what? Who are before his throne. His meaning who? God. Okay. Honestly, did we need to do anything else to get an understanding of that, that picture? Not really, did we? Did anybody think to go back and look in the, in the chapter one about that, that initial description? Did you? Good. Because honestly, if you had done that first, before you did all the homework that she gave you, you would have gone into that homework with clarity and knowing exactly what you were looking for and at. So I thought that was interesting. My point is one of the, the primary rules about doing inductive Bible study, especially when you're in visions and dreams where it's complicated, is always allow scripture to interpret scripture whenever possible. And since we already know that the, that the first layout was given in chapter one that was describing the triune God, and since those qualities are being pulled forward into each of these letters, one of the very first things you can do is go back and read that chapter one each time you open 
to look at the qualities that are going to be attached to the church. You'll get the better picture and you'll see where they're coming from. So scripture has already interpreted for you the, the understanding of it. Okay. Okay. But it didn't hurt you to do the homework. <laughs> it's still great. Correct. Okay. So we've looked at keywords, the seven spirits of God and Jesus, who is described here. We see uh, deeds, wake, uh, wake up, alive, dead, white garments, overcomers, the book of life, and repent. Any other possibilities that you want to bring up at this point? I will is over and always almost. I will, I will, I will. What about that word completed? I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God, right? Okay, so you might want to have put that completed. Concerning that, is there another contrast if you look at that word completed? What would it be in contrast to? <coughs> So there are those whose deeds are not completed. And what is the contrast to that? What's the other group? And what, how does it say, it? this is in verse 2, now drop down to verse 4, and then what is, how does it call them, what does it say about them? Yeah, and it says a few are what? A few are worthy. So it's those whose deeds are not completed, contrasted with a few who are worthy. So what that gives you is your two people groups in this church, right? Those whose deeds are not completed and a few who are worthy. So automatically one of the great tools of doing contrast when you can pick up on them and they you know I used to be called the contrast queen by one of my other groups sorry but I look really really hard for contrast when I'm doing homework it's what is along with looking for keywords I look very diligently at contrast some books are like loaded first John oh my goodness the entire book is nothing but contrast this is what you believe, but this is what's true. This is what you believe, but this is what's tr true. This is the lie. This is the truth. This is the lie. So the whole book of 1 John, if you go through there, contrast, contrast, contrast. But what contrasts do, though, when, especially like in the book of 1 John, when you see so many of them and the major contrast is truth versus the lie, what have you already figured out about the major subject of that book? That it's something about liars and what the truth actually is, right? So you've established just by doing contrast. In this case, what our contrasts, I think, are doing is they're beginning to draw to the surface what our major subject is to this book. Even if you hadn't picked up on it just by reading it, and most of us, I think, did, but for, especially for newcomers into number one Bible study on the whole, but also new believers, it's, it's really imperative that you uh, be able to show them how you know what you know, how you know that this is the subject matter, rather than you trying to convince them by talking them through it. If you just did this, say, okay, what do you see the contrasts are in verse one? Those who are dead and those who are alive. What about 
uh, in verse five, it's those who have white garments and those who have soiled garments. And concerning that, it's those whose deeds are not completed and a few who are worthy. So what is the contrast in totality? Now, this is an analytical question. Analyzing that, what do you think is our major subject in this topic here? What's the topic of Sardis then? Okay, okay. And if you're not, you're dead. And what does that mean to be dead? There you go. There you go. So what it's doing is it's really drawing to the surface that we're making an evaluation in a church. And that's what John has said to them is, look, wake up, right? Some of you are not actually alive. You have a name that you're alive, but you're not alive. But there are a few among you who are. Now, would you say that within any congregation, any church, that is probably a very truthful state, a statement? There are, and in some churches, there's more that are alive than that are dead. But there is always a blend of that in a church. And so what you have to, to say then is, what is, what is God actually calling you and I to do that he just did? Yeah. Yeah. Live your Christian life, evaluating yourself on a regular basis to say, am I walking the walk that I'm talking? Is my life lived out in a way that demonstrates that I'm alive in Christ, that Christ lives in me, right? Okay. So your contrasts alone are so important for you to take the time to look for them. So that's why I wanted to do that with you this morning. Okay. So now let's just go on and move into Jesus because he is the one who is described. And how do we see him described? Who has the seven spirits, you know what, I want to write that, in. well, I'll just underline it, that'll work, seven SP, and it's not just the seven spirits, you can't stop there, it's the seven spirits, what, of God, right, three, one, all right, I'm going to underline that, because that's kind of like a major title almost to what we're going to look at now next, what I want us to do is go back and look on on our day two's homework, if you want to follow me there. And um, for those of you who did or didn't do this, this is another thing I love to do is word studies. Um, if I'm careful enough, I can. I did a bunch. I did like three pages worth of front and back word studies this time. Because I felt like it is, was a short, a short letter, six, six verses. Within it, um, I thought, you know, you never know which word is going to trigger some little piece of something that is really insightful, very um, spiritually encouraging to you personally, even. It may or may not be a big shazam for the whole picture, but it might be something that for you and your life, God is going to say, um, you know, this particular word, this particular thought, this particular doctrine, right, 
is the thing that you needed that day for your comfort, for your edification, for your strengthening, for your building up, right? So it doesn't hurt to do those. And so I did do that. Um, I looked up the word Sardis. Guess what it told me? Nothing. <laughs> it told me the city and the location. <laughs> Nothing. There was no insight on the, by, through the name Sardis. Now, as opposed to some of the others, which sometimes, you know, give you insight about, like we look, when we looked at um, the parchment, yes, and the writing in the book, yeah. So some of them will give you an additional title. This one, uh, one possibility, it says additional thoughts. You know how it does that at the end of some of them. This one said red ones. Okay, I don't know what that means, but okay. So I skipped that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay, that, that told me nothing. But you know what I learned by doing that? And that mean, thank you. You are brilliant. You are brilliant. It meant nothing. It really, you know, it didn't matter. It wasn't significant. So move on. Isn't that good? Isn't that a good thing to figure out? You go, oh, okay, then I didn't, nothing there. Just move on. Well, yeah, you could theoretically, you could analytically look, look at that and, and say, okay, well, so it's just speaking about a church, any church. It was anonymous. It's just speaking of a church who does. And we've already determined that, haven't we? When we've looked at this, that these letters to the churches that a couple of times it says to the seven churches and they're identified specifically, right? But then in other places, it's particularly in chapter 21 at the conclusion of Revelation, he speaks to, in generalities, the churches. So that's a good thing. Okay, let's go on and talk about this funny little word, though, that I did a word study on that I never would have thought it meant a thing. Ah, where is it? Okay, it's just over here on this part of my homework. Okay, so I didn't put it in there. Okay, it's the word has. <laughs> Interesting, has. He says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. He who has. Has means to possess and to hold fast. Now, I'm not sure how, how sure that that really, you know, would be a Shazam moment, a big, a big aha moment for somebody. But the idea that has is telling you that this Jesus holds them, that he has them, that he possesses them, I thought was, if nothing else, what does that tell you about Jesus in this particular letter? Yes. Yeah. Okay. For one thing, it kind of alludes to the, his authority over it, over who it is that he has. The picture in chapter one is that he stands where? In the midst of what? The seven lampstands, right? And he has in his hand what? The, st the stars of the seven churches. And then later in verse 21, what do we learn about the stars? Who are the stars? The angels of the churches. So, again, what happens when we look at that for interpretation? Where did we go to get our interpretation on that? Scripture is interpreting scripture. Did, I, 
this is the second time now already in this letter that scripture has interpreted scripture for us. We've got both interpretations for, ver for Jesus's uh, identity that he gives to this church. Both of them are given to us immediately within the text of the letter that's written. Chapter one tells us this, who that uh, seven, who the seven spirits of God are. And it tells us also about those stars. Let's talk about that one who has the seven spirits of God and who has the seven stars. Um, that's in three, one. Okay, so those are the two things that are told to them concerning Jesus's identity to them. So the fact that he has the word has, I'm going to write this up here, has is 2192 and it means possesses. There's a lot of S's in that. And, ho <laughs> and holds fast. Okay, now let's go ahead and develop the rest of that understanding about the seven spirits part, okay? He says concerning uh, the seven spirits in, in that Revelation 1, what do we learn about that seven spirits just from reading that verse 4 and 5 in chapter 1? He's before the throne, okay? Before the throne. What else? The greeting tells us something. He greets them by saying what to them? Grace to you and peace to you, peace to you from, right? So grace and peace come from him. And also, when you look at where the grace and peace comes from, it comes from him, but who else does it come from? Yeah, the seven spirits. And it also comes from who else? The Father and, the, and Jesus. So it comes from, from him, who is the triune God, correct? That's, we see that in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Before the throne was, uh, was that four? Okay, four. All right. Uh, so that's four, four, five. Okay. So, now, pardon? Grace and peace is also four. Yes, exactly. Got grace and peace, four and five, yeah. Okay, so grace and peace from him, and then it goes on to the triune good father, son, spirit. So I put four and five down here. I really, uh, oh. Yeah, it's in one. That's where I'm back in one, chapter one. Okay. Okay. Because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's okay, Kristen. You, you, you keep me on task, girl, because I need that, you know. And if I can't, if I can't legitimately explain that I was back in chapter one, and somebody else may not catch that either. But I was back to chapter one again to, to get that identity. Now we can go on and look at those cross-references. Let's talk about that Zachariah one that everybody is so enthralled over. And they want to understand it better, right? It's not. A, I'm sorry, what? It's not. Love? A participating study. She, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We need to turn off the volume. Though, so it's it's called precepts. And, and yeah, she's talking highly, to 
Oh, it really goes into the Greek and the. So she's explaining something to someone. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Good morning. Is that? It says Mamie, right? That's what it says. I don't know either. Okay. Sorry, I'm distracted. I heard a voice, and it wasn't from heaven. <laughs> so you know. Anyway. Okay. So. What do the seven spirits represent? She took us, oh, I don't know if she took us, but I took you to Revelation 1. Let's also look at Revelation 5 and let's now, and in Zechariah 4. So we can start with Zechariah 4 since I already told you to turn there. Tell me what you learned about Zechariah 4. What pictorially is given to us there? A lampstand. And how is this lampstand? described or what is the work of this lab stand what is the connection who, who is it connected to and with okay so his it, and it talks about he has eyes right what do the eyes do they go to and fro right and what are they doing going throughout the that's right these are the eyes of the lords which range to and fro throughout the earth and then did you notice in verse six before he explained the all about that he also said concerning that seven lamps he says to me but this is the word of the lord to zerubbabel in verse six he's saying not by might nor by power what we all love this verse, don't we? But by my spirit, saith the Lord. So what have we just learned is that lampstand. That's right. It's my spirit. Just like it actually says. The seven spirits what? Of God. So it's according to Zechariah, it's God's spirit. Uh, that was um, four, six right? I thought that was pretty cool because I hadn't linked that totally together. Can you see all that? I'm sorry, Martha. It's down low and it's underneath all the, the obstacles here. Yeah, you'll get my chart <laughs> just in case you, I, you can't see what's down here. Okay. And um, that, so that was there. Uh, just for fun, let's go over to Second Chronicles because that one was really great. By my spirit, these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro. That is the definition of what the seven spirits are in that passage. And it's how it was shown to, um, um, who was it? Zechariah, right? Now let's go to Second Chronicles 16.9 because it talks about the eyes of the Lord going to and fro. It's not in your homework. That's why. So you got to look this one up. I'm giving you an extra one. Because about those eyes that go to and fro, I want you to know a little bit more about, about those eyes. Second Chronicles 16, 9. Wow. <laughs> now that's a great verse. I think that one. 16, 9. I know, who's fully his. Isn't that cool? 
Isn't that cool? I loved that verse. I thought it is actually the, a perfect balance to having read Zechariah 4, moving into that Second Chronicles one. Then this one tells you that the eyes go to and fro, but it doesn't tell you anything more. But the Chronicles one say, oh, the eyes of the Lord, they go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking him whose heart it might fully support. Or the, or the one who, whose heart is fully supported toward God, the one who loves God, the one who's committed to God. God's eyes are going to and fro looking at your life, watching you that they, he might fully support you. Isn't that cool? I mean, really, first of all, I, it makes me a little nervous <laughs> that God's looking at me that carefully. But the idea that he is there to fully support us, yes. There you go. That's another one in Proverbs. He, God's spirit uh, to give support to hearts who are his. I'll just put it that way because that's good enough. And then that one was in Proverbs was um, his spirit, God's spirit. The eyes of the Lord, which is God's spirit, God's spirit, the eyes of the Lord. Because the, it, we're talking about the seven spirits who are before his throne. We've now led to the next part, which says the eyes of the Lord are speaking of the spirit of the Lord, right? The, the spirit who is before God's throne. You have to link all this. Is, this is the deal about precept. This is why they call it precept. It's one truth upon another truth upon another truth and you have to build these and you have to make those connections and you're right if you just drop into one and only get this much information you still may not understand it but if you keep linking what you do is you start out by building and establishing a truth what is the spirit the seven spirits of the lord well revelation chapter one tells you it's a, a part of the triune godhead and then you go on and read all these other things and when you, when you see one of them says, and, and it's not by my, but by, uh, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He's talked about the, the seven spirits. He says, it's by my spirit that these things are going to be accomplished. And then he, con he concluded saying, uh, these are the eyes of the Lord. So do you see how that was already all connected? Now we're into Proverbs where it says the eyes of the Lord. What, and what was it, uh, Kathleen? Yeah, watching evil and good. Okay, and that's Proverbs. What's thank you? I'm still not seeing very well. It's hard to see with glasses on, you know that? How do you guys wear glasses? I don't get it. Oh, it's so terrible. It just drives me crazy. Can you see that, sweetie? Okay. All right, so says to the churches, who is the eyes of the Lord going to and throw, fro throughout the whole earth, seeing him whose heart he might fully support? When he got to Sardis, what did he say? Oops, you have a name that you're alive, but what? You are dead. Wow. Whew, we could finish right there. That's a great lesson to learn, isn't it? And very, would you say that's really convicting too? I mean, 
it kind of makes you realize how intimate God really is with us and how much he is watching us in all things. And therefore, there's an accountability there. Now, some of you did drawings. Yes. Yes, I love that one. Yes, there are. So in Isaiah 11, she gave us, it was a great cross-reference. It talks about a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Speaking of, through the Davidic bloodline, right, will come a shoot. And that shoot is speaking of Christ, in case you didn't know that. That's Jesus. And he says, a branch and from his roots will bear. And then it gives seven things. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom will rest on him. The spirit of understanding will rest on him. The spirit of counsel will rest on him. And the spirit of strength will rest on him. The spirit of knowledge will rest on him. And the spirit of fear of the Lord will rest on him. If you if you number them out, you have to start with what's going to rest on him. This will rest on him, and you come, and you will see there are seven things there listed listed for you. And um, the first time, I remember the first time I looked at that verse way back when. I kept I kept giving the title as the Spirit of the Lord, and then all the others. I kept coming up with six, and it drove me crazy. <laughs> Finally, somebody explained to me, no, the first thing that rests on him is the Spirit of the Lord. And then it goes on to tell the other six. So you have to include that very first statement in the seven. <laughs> so I hope that clar clarified it for some of you anyway. All right. So what about your visuals on that? That was fun. Okay. Well, I, I was just wondering what the, you know, the first two paragraphs right? Well, for who is this In the hands of Zerubbabel. There, well, now it's taking into a whole. Does somebody else want to explain that? Uh huh. Okay. Who was Zerubbabel? Is what you have to ask yourself. He and he. he Yes. Yeah. And who was, if you go back in history to who was Zerubbabel, he went back to do what? To rebuild, right? And so if, so in a way, it's kind of merging a variety of times of history. But when it's talking about the foundation of the temple of the Lord, who's the temple of the Lord today? We, the church, right? But under the old system, under the law, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, before the, the inauguration of the new covenant, the old covenant, there was a physical building. That's the plumb line that was in the hand of Zerubbabel as he was building this. And it says the, the spirit of the Lord will be, um, will be glad. For who has despised the day of small things? So in other words, this is a small thing. It's a piece of the puzzle along the journey. Um, it, I, you know, I always think about the journey of my personal faith walk to God. It, it was a process, you know, and if you look at God's history of how he's working out salvation for all of humanity and to bring about the culmination of one day when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth for 1,000 years. And when he, along the way, there are small steps. So he calls this one a small thing. And when Zerubbabel has the plumb line in his hand, he will be glad about this small thing because it's part of the 
piece of the puzzle that, that takes us to that ultimate uh, culmination that God wants to take us to. And he said, these, um, so the plumb line, these seven, these eyes, these seven, or these seven spirits of the Lord that you saw in Isaiah 11, right? The spirit of the Lord of wisdom, understanding, counsel, all these things are going to rest on him. And he says, those seven spirits will be happy. They'll be glad in the day when Zerubbabel stands there with the plumb line to do that work. Right, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. Right. But you are going to be the one to complete it. Right. And so when you are holding that plumb line, which means that he hinges the instrument of actual building. Right. It's not a foundation anymore. No, it's not a foundation. Now he's building the building. So when the, when the spirit sees you completing this, the spirit is going to be rejoicing. Yes. And I also think what's really cool, he's rejoicing in the work of God's people on behalf of God's uh, kingdom work, whatever that is. How does that translate to you and I then? Is God happy when he looks at your life? Because he sees in your hand a plumb line of some measure that you are working toward the kingdom building. That you're working on behalf of glorifying God in your life. And that it's exciting, isn't it? Yes. Yes. That's right. And she just quoted Ephesians chapter 2. So, if, 2, 8 to 10. Uh-huh. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Yes. Knowing something, when something is impressed on you from reading the word, yeah. or a situation falls and you get an impression on how you need to handle it, just knowing that is not enough. You have to do it. Yeah, it's true. That's it's, exactly right. It's like the repentance. What you know to do, but you do it not to him if he if you don't do it, it's yeah. sin. That's exactly right. Very good. Okay, now I just want to, yes. So what, I think in the, in the plumb line here also, I think, that the need is by the word of God. So it's kind of yes. like, uh, like straight. Well, that's true. That's a good, yeah, for us especially, that's an important point, right? That the plumb line shows us that the word of God is the is the determining plumb line. I mean, really, that one's huge in our world today because, um, and I like that that uh, series called the Truth Project. Uh, Focus on the Family put it out. Uh, Dale Tackett was the one who did the sermons on it. It's really good. I own that DVD set. If anybody ever wants to borrow it, you could use it for small group where you watch the video and then just have discussion. But he goes deep. I mean, it's not surfacey stuff. It is deep meat. And one of the things he does is the very first question he goes out, man on the street and asks questions. He says, what is truth? What is truth? And you, you get all these really crazy answers from a lot of people, you know. But the end, the end of it is 
truth is what God says. It's the word of God. It's Jesus himself, right? And so we as Christians, truth for us, our plumb line for truth is God's word. And on that we stand. Everyone else may have differing opinions about things. But if you want to hold fast to that plumb line of what truth is, is you always need to be able to go back to the word. Yeah. Okay, I want to move on. Let's move on to this. I know that was a great conversation. Okay, this is, the, this is one of the visuals that was given uh, to me. I, I got it online about that picture that's given to us in um, Zach, Zechariah about the lampstand and then the two trees, right? So I don't know how you drew your pictures, but I just wanted to give you a little show and tell on the possibilities here. What they show here is at the very top of each of these branches, is uh, a literal lamp, like a little Aladdin's lamp. And each lamp is lit. And you remove that lid and down inside, that's where you fill it with oil. And in the temple, that's what they would do is they would fill these lamps each day with oil. That's the work of the, um, the priests. That's their duty to do on a daily basis under the old system of the law. Um, that's why there was a miracle when they did it on, with, for what they now celebrate, which is Hanukkah, uh, and they now have nine branches rather than seven, because what they do is they said the Lord allowed that lamp to uh, burn for nine days on oil that should have only lasted for I don't know how many days, but a lot. It should have been burned out by then, so it was a miracle, and it allowed them time ceremonially to cleanse that temple and get it ready and back up and running after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphany. So this is a, a picture of that. You can get Google on, online, but it is seven branch or yeah, seven branches. That's what's depicted in Zerubbabel. Those seven branches with the lit oil on the top is pictorial of the Holy Spirit, right? And the oil is, whole, is also depictive of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the two olive trees, which have nothing to do with our conversation today, but I'm sure everyone has questions, but it'll matter later. So if you get one of these pictures and download it and copy it, put it in your folder, when we get later into Revelation, we're going to talk about these two olive trees again. Okay? All right, so that lays down for us. Now we know who the seven spirits of the Lord are, right? It's who? The Holy Spirit. Easy peasy, right? That was so simple. We hardly needed to do a homework on that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, let's go on and look now at those who need to wake up. Those who need to wake up. So that was our first, our first, uh, point that was made to us on day th three he said to them you have a name that you're alive um did anybody look up the word alive Any word studies done on that word alive, what it means to be alive? Do you maybe look up the word alive or dead? Oh, good. You looked up dead. That's good. Okay, well, I'll give you alive, and then you guys will give me dead, okay? We'll get to that next part. Alive is 2198. It's the word uh, zeo. 
There, there, actually, on my word study, it was more than just that. It was um, also, you can see the word in 3-1, uh, bios, B-I-O-S. They all, they all tie together though. They're all like synonyms of one another. So don't get confused by that when sometimes you get a different Greek um, uh, tr uh, transliteration. That transliteration, I mean, the life can have a variety of ways of saying it apparently. And they all basically mean the same thing. It's considered, according to the thing, a synonym, okay? All right, so Zeo or B-I-O-S, BIOS. Okay, it means basically a life. <laughs> oh boy, that was fun. I learned a lot. The period of, or the course of life, that which life is sustained, resources, wealth, goods. It denotes physical vitality of organic beings. Oh boy, that's interesting. Um, and it's expressed in the fact that living creatures rise up and move and have their distinctive so it's life in which, if you, if you consider it that way, it's life which does what? Moves and therefore, and therefore in the moving it accomplishes work. <laughs> ah, life uh, has movement, uh, vitality, And then you guys can look that one up and get all the, I mean, there's a bunch on here. But in the end of it, what you see when you conclude it is it's that, that which indicates you have life and how do you know it has life? It has life because it has movement and it has vitality and it accomplishes something. It does something. It's not just sitting there. It's life. It's, I remember having a conversation years ago on an airplane of a man who, of course, stupid me. I didn't know that much then, and I was still still learning. And um, we were talking about life, and he said, and we were talking about murder and why it was wrong and all these things. Abortion, I think, was probably on the agenda. He was a scientist, way over my head. Of course, he, he could talk to me like this, you pee on you, right? Which he did the whole time. But it was really interesting because it was a full conversation. We literally went from Genesis to to, I mean, yeah, Genesis to Revelation and back. And I covered everything I knew, <laughs> trying to convince him about God and why God, why there was accountability one day for our lives and why he needed to have Jesus. I am not an evangelist, but there was a woman sitting in the chair in front of us who had her ear, you know how in between the chairs is this little crack, she had her ear, right? I noticed it about a half of the way through it. And we had talked for like two hours. But one of the things he said to me that pertains to this is he scratched himself. He said, I just flaked off uh, skin cells. Did I commit murder? Because there's life in that, those skin cells. I'm going, he's missed the whole point. You know, first of all, the life is in the blood. That's one of the first things. But the, the concept of the blood tells you that it's a human being who has physical movement, life, and ability to do something, right? Anyway, so I lost that conversation. Huh? So what did you do? I don't remember. I just know that I made no headway with him. He, <laughs> he ate me for lunch and breakfast. Katie, Saul did not intend to be converted to Jesus. That's he true. Out on the road to That's true. You never know. You never know. And if nothing else, he's accountable because he was told, yes. right? 
Maybe it had to do with the lady in front of you. And maybe it had something to do with me learning a little bit more about, or humility. I don't know which, maybe that was it. Uh, but I did, I did not succeed with him, but it was a very good conversation. And I remember it very well still in my mind. And um, I hope so. <laughs> I know, the lady in front of me, I have no idea who she was. We never talked. But she was glued to that seat hearing every answer I was giving. She wanted to know. And I thought, well, maybe my conversation was for her, not for him. Yep. You know, he was asking a lot of questions, though. He wouldn't let it go. Every time I would say, well, you know what, let me just go. It all started because I had my precept work with me and I was doing homework. And I said, well, let me just go back to my homework. You know, they, you know I got to get this done. And um, then he, he'd sit there for like, 20, 30 seconds, and he go, well, uh, <laughs> he, pulled, he wanted to argue. That was all there was to it. He wanted to argue about it. It was pretty good. Okay, so now let's move on to day three of your homework. Open to day three. Here we have, um, look here, looking for my little, I don't know what I did with it, my synopsis of what we did in day three. Day, oh, that's day two. No wonder I'm confused. Okay, day three. Uh, where does spiritual life come from and how is it manifested? So in the case of this particular subject, we this lets us know it's, it's talking about physical life, right? On one quality. But more than that, because the contrast is given to us, right? What is the contrast on that sense? You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Who is saying this? God is saying this, right? Or Jesus through, through the Holy Spirit to John and John's write, writing this down. God is saying to this church, Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. So would you say we know quite a few churches out there like that today? You know what's really interesting, though, is do you know churches that if you only look at the appearance of their behavior, that you would go, well, that's a good church. I, I can remember a conversation also a few years ago uh, about a man who was actually a pastor. Okay, so he's standing up at the pulpit week by week, proclaiming the gospel message, giving his sermons. People are getting saved. He's baptizing them. Um, one day he's in the baptismal about to baptize someone and uh, he's electrocuted and he dies. I know, very sad. And of course, everybody's just devastated. And as time though went by, all of a sudden, lots of horrible things were coming out about this man, about his life, about what he was doing, his behavior, who he was engaging with, what he was doing with his money, all these vile yeah it, there you go thank you so so thank you where were you the night i had that conversation so stupid me i'm with people who are not his best friends they just know of this it's not like i'm attacking somebody's 
who's tenderhearted and brokenhearted in the moment. I'm in a conversation with Christians from my church who just read about it in a newspaper and somebody was going on about it and they're going, oh, this is just horrible. This is, well, he's now he's with the Lord. Now he's released from his drug addiction, from his sexual addiction, from his, you know, all these other things. He, he was pilfering money out of the church and all this stuff. And, and after they were all boohooing about this poor man, you know, and all the horrible things he does, but now he's with the Lord. And then my response, very quietly, by the way, I didn't yell it. I was under my breath. I said, or not. Yeah. <laughs> because why? What is... Well, um, yeah. I did a word study on wake up. Yes. Oh, nice. Uh huh. That's exactly right. You hear the word all the time, and it means hurry up, come on. It's like step two, you know, hop two. Yes. And um, the, the Nicene Creed, you know, has the part about um, God will judge between the quick and the dead. Yes. The quick. That's where it comes from. It's the awake. The awake. He will judge between those who actually are alive and awake and doing his will and those who are dead. Yeah. Very interesting. And the word wake up, it also means to take heed, right? So pay attention, be vigilant. Um, be on the alert. You, you can't be sleeping, right? Yes. Very good, Cynthia. That was a that was really good information there. And I like the way you tied in uh, the how common the word has become and how how you can move it right into the everyday work of Grigio or whatever you said. Grigara, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Turkey, it was Chabuk. Chabuk, Chabuk. Yes. Right, right. And he says, I never knew you. That's right. That's right. Into everlasting darkness, right? So that's not like a good place. That's not like heaven. That's not like um, you're going to go to to be eternally with God. That is a condemnation of many who said, did you not say unto me, Lord, Lord? That's this church. I mean, to the T, that's a, a Matthew verse, right? Out of Matthew, if I remember, yeah. And so th this is exactly what this church was doing. They had an appearance of being Christians, but their deeds were not, a, a, they, the accountability of them before the Lord, he had looked at their deeds. He is the one who has the eyes that go to and fro, who look at, as Kathleen said, the good and the, and the evil. Hebrews, yeah. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Well, you guys, I think you've actually got this lesson really, really well. I don't think you guys had any trouble with this one. This is one of those 
that can be a problem because when I said to that group um, or not, right, that that God may, maybe he's not with the Lord because although he stood at a pulpit, although he had a testimony that he would give on a regular basis about who Jesus was, and it was accurate, and people were being saved by the words he was saying, and yet he himself, he was not living in that manner, which was, yeah, so he had a name that he was alive, but he was what? Dead. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let's do that one next. Okay. So wake up. And then he says, um, I have not found your deeds. I have not found your deeds completed. Um, in the sight of my God, right? Three, two. And so that word completed. And what did you see on that word? Okay, maybe, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. In this particular um, message, I think what he's really saying is you've missed the mark. It isn't that you haven't filled it up. You're, you're filling the wrong bucket, yeah. <laughs> right? Because what did we learn this week about the works that we're to do? He goes on to say what part, do, in day four, what parts do... Uh, your deeds have in salvation. Well, the first couple of verses we looked at were the Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? Mm -hmm. And what did it say in there? What part, I'm going to put this over here. What part do deeds have in salvation? And that's on day four. And then the question, the answer to that, the first one is uh, primarily the first couple of references are on the subject of justification. Remember last week when I told you how you have those two pillars? The other one was the one, about, the first one was about context, setting context, right? The other one was on doctrines. But concerning doctrines, you sometimes have to break them down into their smaller parts. So when you talk about the subject of salvation, which is basically what we're talking about here, are these people saved or not? God is saying most of them are not. They, are, they have a name that they're alive, but they're actually dead. And so concerning salvation, then we looked at some verses that almost look contradictory, right, about deeds. Let me see if I can find day four here. Yep. And it, and it, she started out by giving us Revelation 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4, but then she went on, we looked at Luke and Matthew, right? And um, yeah, Luke and Matthew, two and Matthew. And where, hold on, though. We had a, we had the other ones too. Where were they? What? 
I'm sorry. We yeah, because we looked at Ephesians. What day was that on? It's on page 58 at the bottom, number three. Number three. Okay, 58. Hold on. Let me move back to page 58. There it is. Okay. So the first one, so she had us look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we started back on that one first. And what did you see in Ephesians 2 concerning what do works have to do with our relationship with Jesus? What did you learn there in Ephesians? He was created in Christ Jesus. Right. For good works. And? And God prepared it before me. You have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. There you go. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of? works. So you are, justification says you are saved. Um, let me see how, how did I put it? Saved by grace. Not by works. So when you talk about that bucket that's not been completed, not been filled, I think it's, he's actually saying there are two buckets. You have a bucket over here you're filling and it's still not even full. The bucket that needs to be full is this other one. It's called justification, not sanctification. And we talked about this last week. There are, there's three verb tenses in scripture for the word salvation. And you have to be able to discern them when you're reading the, the text. And it's tough sometimes for uh, beginners in this, but eventually you get you get pretty good at it. But when there is anything involved where God is telling you works, 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 you know what that is? Sanctification. It's your working out your faith in fear and trembling. It's a working out because Ephesians goes on in verse 10 to say that you were created in Christ Jesus unto doing good works, right? So that's sanctification. But how were you saved according to the first two verses? Not by works, but by, by grace. By faith are you saved through grace, not by works. Why not? Least any man should boast. <laughs> right. So in 8 to 10, it gives you that. But you were saved unto doing those good works, but that's not what saved you. It was, it was God's grace. The other one you looked at was Titus, and it basically said the same thing. What? Not saved how? Not saved by deeds. Your deeds. Deeds of man. Yeah, because it wouldn't matter how many work. That's what the problem with Sardis is. They were doing works and they had a name that they were alive, but what? They're actually dead. How many of you have seen churches that are out there? Do, oh, there are so many things they do that annoy me. One of the worst, one of the very worst ones that drives me absolutely insane is when you see a church group standing on a street corner with a bucket begging for money for their church ministries. For their church, what? For their ministries in their church. So they have a bucket and they're saying, please help. God's people can't do it. God can't do it. We need you, the secular world, to help us. Please. <laughs> well, and what's wrong with us? Oh, because what does that make God? Impotent. No, Weak. Absolutely. Not necessarily. Well. If they're out there requesting funds and people are kind enough to give them funds, 
that doesn't make God incompetent. It makes him gracious to allow that to happen or no, to but, force it to happen. But the point, okay, but the point is, is there a principle on how the household of faith is supposed to receive their money? Who's to give to, as a matter of fact, there's lots of scriptures in the Old Testament of people who wanted to even help building of the temple, rebuilding of the temple, but they didn't meet the criteria that God God had about how and who could, and they were rejected, right? How, how Who was supposed to be the ones building that temple? The Jews mm -hmm. and the and the household of faith that that's that's a fun, fundamental principle. The other one is that that when you um, when you receive from the Lord, you receive receive from the household of faith. So you see all the way through the scriptures where God's people are are uh, asking of the household of faith to be generous, right? To give because God has given, but to go to the world and ask the world to give because. You think because the household of faith is not giving enough to meet what you think your needs are, or it, may not have enough, and may not have enough. That's right. Now, in that case, you know who should be giving to them? Not on the street corners. Who should be giving to the poor churches? Other churches. Other churches. That's right. Okay. So we'll save that for a, a conversation on our on our own. Okay, because otherwise we're going to spend too much time. But but uh, on the whole. What we know is God's people are to give to God's house, not the, not the unsaved world. We don't go begging. It's one of the reasons why God told Israel, don't go back down to Egypt to get your horses and your, and your supplies, right? Don't covenant with uh, other nations. Do not let your uh, daughters marry their sons because there's not, what does light have to do with darkness? I mean, there are so many principles on that subject where, no, you don't go to the unsaved world. And you sure don't stand on the street corner and beg. <laughs> it shows, it shows the, that God is in... those people that give. I know. It sounds good. That's what the no, problem no, was. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying, how do you know when you speak like you're speaking that these people are not Christians? Then they, in their churches, should give to their churches, think, and their churches will give. I think give. what Katie's trying to say is not about the people giving to the church. It's about the church going out and saying, right. give to us because our own congregation can't help. God can't send the money somehow, so we need to now go this way. It's about the begging portion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Right. Thank you. He's a great example of that. Yes, he is. The knock on the door, the bread truck that breaks down out front, the milk truck, the, yeah, excellent example of that. That's exactly right. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. So now here's what we got. I have not found your deeds completed. They're not fulfilled. He, she says, wake up, wake up. And then he says, but you are also dead. And dead is what number? Because we didn't get that one. That was 3498. Necros. You may not have done it, but I'm just saying. It's it's good to see it. Um, did anybody somebody told me they did look this one up? Okay, good. Go for it. Uh-huh. A corpse. <laughs> Necros, a corpse. Death. And it went on to explain about the metaphorical meaning on it. But what I would like to say is the metaphorical, what did your metaphorical say, Kathy? It says spiritually dead, destitute of a life, but recognizing 
houses and they're devoted to God because given up to trespasses and sins. Yes. So because they're given up to, they are still under the condemnation of sin. Do you remember the other thing I talked about last week about federal headship? You're either in Christ or, or you're in Adam, one, one or the other. If you're in Adam, you're, you are a corpse. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. And it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. They're not unto the Lord. And the Lord does not look at those as anything that means anything. they get burned up. They're gone when you go before the judgment seat of God. Because what is the work that is necessary for you to be made right before the Lord so that you're clothed in white garments? The blood of Christ. Because how do you make those garments white to begin with? Symbolically, what is the picture? The blood of Christ. They are they are made white by the blood of Christ. He paid our debt. Yes. We couldn't do anything to pay our debt. That's right. Debt. Isn't this a great lesson? It's a doctrinal teaching about salvation, about deeds, about works, and how works play into it. You, you're learning to to distinguish uh, justification versus sanctification. You're able to discern the subject matter of being, whether you're federally in Adam and still dead in your sin, which is these people, they were necros, rather, uh, rather than those who are alive, who are the few in Sardis who are, are alive, and they are alive, and they are, they are found to be what? How are, what does he say about them? They're worthy. With them in white. Yeah. Because they are worthy. Because they are worthy. So let's talk about those worthy. We, we, have, we missed a few things there, but we'll go on. Um, a few people in Sardis, you could say the church, right, are worthy. of the issue to this we're not talking about the man on the street we're not talking about going out into the world to evaluate who's saved and who's not saved god is looking at a church these are people who are attending church who are saying i'm a christian but they are not living the life that god wants them and god is whose spirit goes to and fro who's who's who is a, like that sharp two-edged sword who can pierce the heart and discern the thoughts from the intents of the heart. He is the one who says of them, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Why are you dead? What's missing? The spirit of the Lord. They don't have the Holy Spirit upon them. So a few people in Sardis, however, are worthy, and they are worthy because what have they not done? Yep, they had not soiled their garments. So this is, again, now remember, this is symbolism, right? So we, what we're not saying is that you can get a garment given to you and then it can be taken away. It gets soiled and so God takes it away from you. In other words, he gave you salvation, but now you didn't behave properly, so now he's going to take it away. That is not what is being said here. So that needs to be made very, very clear. And that's why you have to know those doctrines that once saved, always saved. If, if in fact, you get given a white garment that has been dipped in the blood to be made white... You keep that garment forever. Ephesians also says that you were, you were saved by the Spirit and sealed for how long? Eternity. 
until the day of redemption, eternity. You do not lose your salvation if, in fact, you're saved. Now, you know, along the way, we can have doctrines that are flawed or in error. We can have thinking that's in error. But what God is looking for is, do you have that Holy Spirit? Your deeds, the things that you are doing, uh, are not what's going to count. Yes. Okay. Again, symbolism. That's a good question. Okay. Let's do that one. Uh, let me finish. Let me finish this. It says, uh, they're going to not soil their garments and they, they will, they will walk with Jesus. This is going to come up again later in, in revelation. So keep all these things in mind with Jesus in white. Okay, um, I want to talk about, we're going to, uh, let's see, okay, I will not, erase their name from the book of life. And what verse was that? Five. Okay, I know you told me, but I forgot. <laughs> okay, they were not. Okay, so again, symbolism is being used to describe something that's eternal. It's a lot like how Jesus used to uh, use parables. He would tell an earthly story that had a heavenly meaning, right? He used earthly things to explain things that we otherwise really couldn't grab hold of or comprehend because they're spiritual truths that we haven't really experienced fully yet. So he uses something in this temporal world that we can relate to. So the, histor the historical research on this, did anybody do research about a book of life in the Jewish community? Good. Well, what I'm saying to you is the symbolism here is that in the earthly book of life, the Hebrew people, they did have a, they had like a census book that they kept for each community. And when a person was born, they would write it in there. And then when the person died, they erased it. But if you get written into God's, God's book of life or the Lamb's book of life, that book you never get erased from. So I'm saying don't go tit for tat on it. It's just a symbolic picture to say there is a book of life. Your name is written in it. In the, in the, in the worldly uh, picture of it, your name will be erased when you physically die. But God is saying there's a spiritual book of your spiritual life. And when you're written in that one, because you never spiritually die once you're written in it, because you have assurance of salvation, you will never be erased from that book. So... Yes. That's right. Same thing. That's a good, that's another good picture. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we might want to write name on our list of keywords that you might want to pay attention to and take a look at and just make a, every time you find a keyword and you make a list on it, sometimes they're kind of short, but they still connect thoughts for you. So they're, they're helpful in that way. Thank you for pointing that one out. That's exactly right. Can you see the, the, the intricacy, the, the, the web that we have in this little six verses about doctrines concerning salvation, about faith, about eternal life, about the, the book of life. And, and there is an earthly book, but there's a heavenly book. The earthly book, you, you will be erased out of it in the earthly system. The Jews, that's what they did. Now, we don't do that. I don't know that we have a census that, that does that for in the Gentile world at all. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of that. But the Jews did, especially when they were still living on the land. Each city kept a census. They kept a record. And if you were alive, you were in that book, right? But when you died, your book was erased. And God is saying to you, but my book, if you're written in that book, you will never be erased. So there's a contrast. We should put that over here, contrast. Um, a book and erased a book and never erased i i need to i'm sorry there are times when i just can't quite yeah if you're in the in the book of life that god has yes and I'm assuming that you're, you can still be on the earth. Mm -hmm, of course. In that book. But I read somewhere that God will erase some people. I suspect, let's say that person committed oh, murder. Okay, there are two books. One is a physical yeah, book of life. The other is the Lamb's book of life. But I think it was the Lamb's book of life. No. no. You're never blotted out of the Lamb's book of life Even if you're in it. you commit a sin like murder. No, yeah, absolutely. Yes. You're never they're all e It doesn't matter. You could be Adolf Hitler if you came to repentance, you would go to heaven. Oh, if you came to repent. Yes. But if you reversed then his name was never Adolf Hitler's name was never in the Lamb's book of life to begin with. No, that's right, because you have to have the Holy Spirit to begin with. Adolf Hitler never was written in Jesus's, the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, but I have the person who is in the Book of Life. That's physical life. No, I'm talking about Jesus' book. Do you, what is your scripture verse? And we'll look at it. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, you don't know? Okay, okay, that's okay. Okay. I would say the answer is emphatically, if you're in Jesus's book of life, you are, you will never be blotted out and you so cannot be blotted out. It's not possible to sin sufficiently nope. to be erased. That's right. Okay. That's right. But a true believer will seek to do what? Seek to live righteously. They won't want to murder. They won't want to steal or lie or uh, hopefully, right? Now, can they? <sighs> yeah, probably, because people can do evil things. Uh, David did evil things, and yet God called him a man after his own heart. And he repented, right? 
I know it's it's a thank goodness it's in God's hand to make those decisions. But I'm but considering the doctrine about the book of life, I'm saying to you where he's talking about the book of life. A few insiders are worthy. They've not soiled. Right. This is symbolic. He says, I'm not going to erase their name from the book of life, but the symbolism in there for the Jewish mind. And remember, these are a lot of these are Jews. I know it's in a Gentile place, but there are a lot of Jews in these communities. As a matter of fact, Sardis is one of the ones that was heavily Jewish. Sure, they did. Yes. Right. Nope. Yes, that's good. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. You read correctly. <laughs> you read the same article I read. Um, th this one says it had, uh, the historical background on Sardis is it had grown wealthy through the textile, dye, and jewelry industries. It was a center of pagan worship as well as a home to a very large and wealthy Jewish community. Uh, yet there was no mention of persecution coming against it, which is very interesting also, because what do we know about uh, churches on the whole? What happens when people are vibrant and living and alive and doing good deeds that are Christian godliness? There's going to come persecution. If you are living for Jesus, they are going to hate you because... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But it says, apparently, this church was no threat to the community or its pagan gods. So because they, were, they weren't resisting the worldliness that was around them, they weren't being persecuted. Their good deeds were not as a result of salvation and thus were totally earthly doing good. Whatever they were doing that was good, it was earthly doing good. And it doesn't even talk about that they even did any good. Just, you know, that their deeds, whatever those deeds were, they were found, had fallen short. Yep. Almost, we're hitting that lukewarm. We're heading towards our lukewarm church, aren't we? Their deeds must not have challenged the false God worship or the sinful lives of the pagans. Okay. Did you have a question, Diane, or a statement? I wanted to read a verse out of Matthew. Okay, good. Okay. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Mm -hmm. You will know them by their fruits. Yep. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then that's Matthew 7? That is Matthew 7, yeah. Okay. 15 through 20. 15 to 20. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Okay, so in other words, you will know a Christian, a true Christian, by their fruits. However, are those fruits what save them? No. No. That's the distinction we have to grab hold of right up front is you are not saved by doing good deeds. You are saved by how? Grace. And in the picture of this church, what is Jesus saying to them that they need? They need the grace and the Holy Spirit. They, he says this, the one who, who, who has the seven spirits of God, in other words, Jesus who has, who is, 
right? God himself, he has the seven spirits of God, which represent the whole, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, your deeds are found short. You you say you're a Christian, but you're dead. What you need is what? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> what I have is what you need. Le the next letter I think he talks about, come to me and buy from me what you need. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Bingo. That is the grand finale of this entire lesson. What, what did they need? They were found incomplete. Why? They needed the Holy Spirit. And these were people who did not have the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. Nothing new under heaven, <laughs> says Solomon. It's not like, oh, we've fallen away. No. No. Yeah. And there also was some good news in the historical research. I think the guy's name was Miletos. He was one of the founding fathers. He's known to have, they believe, to have been one of the bishops of this church, which followed this letter later, you know, several I think a generation later, he followed the, the apostolic uh, era. He came right on the heels of it. He would have known possibly uh, Polycarp and some of those others who, who were trained by John, right? Uh, so he, there's some hope. Apparently they went on for a, a while, right? That church did. So there were still a few that were dressed in white who had not soiled their garments. As a matter of fact, Miletos, I've got in here on my research, he wrote some apologetic letters or doc, doc, they called them doctrines, I think. And the whole thing was, was uh, defending, you know, the need, the need for the Holy Spirit in the church and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he was also a part of the council that wrote uh, the finishing up of the canonization of the Old Testament, which I thought was interesting. So he was the one of those. So he was one who was defending the doctrinal truths, and it was a part of that. And he also was from, came out of Sardis or was a part of the Sardis Church. But I keep having the question of what happens, or what do you do to obtain the Holy Spirit if you're part of that church? And I miss things. Okay. Every Number one, it says wake up. And how do you wake up? Okay, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, First of all, you have to remember what you have received and heard. There you and go. Keep it and repent. So they've already been told everything, but they have to remember it. Yes, I have not. I said, wake up. And he says to them, number one, uh, he said, okay, so strengthen um, the things that remain. This is how you're going to wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. That was in 3-2. And he said, number two, remember what you received, right? That which you received. And what I struggled with, Katie, was the things that remain are about to die, which indicates to me there was something there that wasn't there. 
Yes. Okay, so, so, okay, so here's what they can do so that they can wake up. Strengthen the things, right, that remain. Remember what you, what you received. What had they received? The gospel of God, right? What you have heard. And then do what? Keep it. And what does keeping it entail? The demonstration that James says that faith without works is what kind of a faith? It's dead. It's what Sardis had, a dead faith. So you, if, you're, if you truly have received the gospel message that Jesus Christ is your, uh, the way, the truth, and the life, that you receive the Holy Spirit, which is the seal until the day of redemption, and once you receive that, that he says what you have received and what you've heard, now you have to keep it. So one is justification, then the next part is sanctification, which is where the word keep it comes in, right? So first you have to have justification, which is you need the Holy Spirit. The second part is sanctification, where you keep it, which is your deeds, deeds of righteousness. And there only can be righteous deeds if you have the Holy Spirit, right? With the verses that we looked up there were Titus, James, and Matthew. Uh, those who have believed in Titus, it says those who have believed God are to be careful to engage in good deeds. That's what Titus 3.8 said. James 2 says, show your faith by doing works. That's in James 2. If you aren't doing works that please God, works that are righteous, then your faith is worthless. It's a dead faith faith. It doesn't even exist. You say it does, but it really does not exist at all. And the other one says in Matthew, the one who does God's will will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what is the will of God? Well, you've been saved by grace unto doing good works. So the two are like a two sides to a coin. Yes, Carol. At first when I read this, I thought this sounded like a lot because they had lost their first love. But Ephesus was not called dead. This church is dead. He said about them, basically, you need to kindle up, kindle afresh, right? The work of... Yeah, a little bit, yeah. There's certainly some application of all these things to all of the church. That is going to be actually ultimately the point to all that we're looking at is all these things that we are reading to the seven churches. You can't isolate them. This is for him. This is for him. It's kind of like we all need a blend of all of it for the church to function well. Well, what I did was I colored mine, if you can see from there. I darkened the first, th uh, well, actually after verse 1, 2, and 3, I darkened that with a gray to show the darkness of their hearts was still there and their deeds because they were dead, dead spiritually. What does dead mean? Death, spiritual death. 
And the, the other, the contrast again, was those whose deeds are not completed and the others were the few who were worthy. So there is a contrast between those who are, have really no faith. They're calling themselves Christians and they're showing up to church. And by the way, they're the ones who wear the jacket that says, I believe to Jesus and then go out into the world and live like the devil and give Jesus a bad, uh, a bad name. Okay, so and then the second part, verses four and five, I did in yellow to say this is the true believer who's enlightened by the Holy Spirit. No, he's talking about the individual because it's dead and the dead has to do with not having the Holy Spirit. So a church, if you're talking about a physical building, does not have a Holy Spirit. The individual, the people do. Right. Well, he is watching. Yes, he is. He is preaching congregationally, and then he's addressing individually each one. And you either fall in the your dead part or your alive part. Well, if he, I mean. I for me, if you hadn't put that extra part in about, but you have a few people, you could still go it the same way. It's pretty much most of them were were in the dead state. Yes. And there were a few in the congregation that were not. And he's just pointing out, hey, but you do have some. Yes. You do have some. You do have some. And that, and then he talks about that that it had almost died. Now let's go on and talk about this self-examination part a little bit because we didn't do that in in our homework. But okay. <laughs> I mean, this is a really good one. I wish we had a lot more time to cover this subject because this is doctrine. This is something that if we went back and did a study in the book of Romans, we would very methodically, I know some of you are choking, but it was so good. You know who's doing it? Jack Hibbs. If you go online and I'm going to send you a link on it, Jack Hibbs right now is doing a, a expository teaching through the book of Romans right now. It's Excellent. If you want to understand salvation, justification, how it applies to what we're seeing in the world today, it's really, really good. Anyway, I will send you the link when I when I send out my my email. Okay. Okay. So self-examination. We did not look at the need for self-examination in our homework, but what we did was we looked instead at what part do deeds play in our relationship? How, if you're going to have the Holy Spirit, how does that happen? Not by works, but by grace. But on the other hand, once you've received it, justified. Now, you know, once you have justification, then you have to go into sanctification, which is do the deeds, right? Do deeds of faith. Work on, do, do the kingdom work, right? But Self-examination was not brought up. So here I want to talk, I want to look at basically just two verses. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 3. We're going to start in verse 12 and read through 19. Somebody would like to read that part. And then somebody else read for me 4, 1 through 6. And we're going to look at what these teach us. Hebrews 3, 12 to 19. Also Hebrews 4, 1 to 6. That's to start with. Okay, who's got the first one? Hebrews 3, 12 to 19. Take 
there's more to one another daily, which is called, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all that came out of Jesus had murdered. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they cannot enter because, because of unbelief. Okay, so because of unbelief, they could not enter. The, it was the promised land, which is a picture of what? Of of our of eternal life or of heaven, right? For us, the promised land is going to heaven, correct? Okay, so because of unbelief, there were some there who could not enter. Now, could they all not enter? Did some of them enter? Yeah, who entered? Well, Joshua, Caleb, right? Some of those who, who entered in, those who were faithful unto God. Okay, and by the way, God made them wander in the wilderness for... How long? 40 years. 40 years until who had died off? All those who had been un in unbelief and had disobeyed God. Okay? So unbelief and disobedience also. Okay. Then you, you go to uh, Hebrews six, uh, 4, 1 to 6. Who wants to read that one? Okay. Therefore, let us fear if while pro a promise remains... Of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, so, but why did they fail to enter? Because of disobedience. And what, has, what had they heard? The good news, meaning the gospel message, right? that God had salvation through a seed, that all, I mean, all, all these things that they were promised. He says, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. Does that not sound like what happened here? What was the command to them? Remember what you received and what you heard and then what do what with it keep it so hebrews 3 and 4 these verses are, line up perfectly with this what what i think they should have been told to do is self-examine sit down and self take an account a record of 
what it is that you put your faith in and are you and are you living according to it um oh gosh there's just so many verses i i'm trying to remember all the different places i've heard but basically you have to know what the what the word of god is and you need to respond to it by obedience and that's what israel did not do and that's why many of them did not get uh, to enter into the land he says they failed to enter because of disobedience those who did not enter it was because of disobedience meaning disobedience to the word of god that's in 4 6 okay now again i'm going to just conclude by saying cuz we're all the all the way at the end i know um Go back into First John. First John gives you an assurance of salvation. This basically is like a checklist. You can go through chapter one, chapter two, all the way. To, it's just five chapters. And in that one, as I said earlier, if you want to look for contrast, there's like a million of them. It's constantly back and forth because what First John is doing is refuting Gnostic teaching that there's a higher spiritual realm into which only a few enter and. Uh, they basically deny that Jesus was God come in flesh because they separate the flesh from the from the spirit. And I mean, it's a it's a lengthy study to have to look at. But that's what's being refuted in there is Gnostic teaching. And in there, he goes through and he says, this is how you can know. The first thing in chapter one is that you confess your sins. Well, a Gnostic would never do that because they don't care what you do in your flesh. It doesn't affect your spirit as far as they're concerned. But this one says that you are to confess your sins. But the other thing that's really important for you to remember, 1 John is written to the believer, not to the unbeliever. So everything in there is about you, the Christian, and what it is that you are to do. And it talks about asking for forgiveness. Oh, now, wait a minute. I'm confused. Didn't I already get forgiven by justification? So what is this talking about? sanctification the faith walk and in the faith walk you still go back to god daily and ask him god forgive me god help me god i need you god i can't do this on my own god i'm i'm a dismal failure in so many ways and i need the power of the spirit of god the sevenfold spirit of god needs to just you know invigorate me and and draw me and guide me and protect me and literally put a guard over my mouth because half the time I say things I shouldn't, right? So God says that we need to recognize our need for God and go to him in prayer and ask for forgiveness in things. And then he says, he concludes in 5, 11 to 13, that these things have been written that you may believe in the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is what Sardis needed. They needed self-examination. They needed to understand that you don't enter. Be, be, it's unbelief. And unbelief is linked to disobedience. And you've heard the message. That's what he says in the opening of chapter 4. You've heard it. You need to enter into the rest of God. You need the spirit of God. That's where you get that rest. And you only get that through acknowledging that you need God that you need the Holy Spirit. That's the work that is not completed in the sight of God in this letter. What's not completed is their salvation. 
Okay. Amen. You did good, guys. Thank you so much. Bye. See you next week. <laughs>